from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 4th. For months, a team of reporters at The Post has been looking into a series of crimes committed over the course of more than three decades. Many of them have never been fully solved. The scope of these crimes tell us a lot about our justice system and its shortcomings. They tell us about who we believe and whose lives and deaths we think matter. We're hearing the story from reporter Hannah Knowles. Derek Prince and Damian Christie are two half-brothers who grew up in the 80s and 90s, spending at least part of their time in Odessa, Texas. Derek was raised by his aunt. Damian ended up eventually living with his grandparents. But both of them were able to still see and have a relationship with their mom, Denise Christie brothers. Derek remembers living in San Angelo, but coming out to Odessa over the summers and on holidays. It was always great memories. It was always the best experience that I had of my life. To hang out with his brothers and his other family members. We would all like sleep in the same bed. You know, of course I would because I wanted to be with my mom. So I was like, Mom, I want to go, sleep with you. I want to go sleep with you. And he has all these fond memories of his mom. We would always watch TV and we would sit on her lap and she would have a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. He remembers her crocheting things for him. She had crocheted me this little red octopus and it had like a white little cap on. Describe her as a mom. I mean, at the time she wanted to be a mom, she could she could be a mom. Damien, who's lived in Odessa all his life, was a bit more attuned to his mom's troubled side. Other times that she wanted to be off doing other things and not be a mom. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as like being on drugs or or getting at the wrong crowd and stuff like that. And that's when I didn't want to be around. He knew all about her struggles with addiction. He remembers dropping her off at a clinic for drug treatment. And he knew more about just how she had um, struggled through this series of failed marriages and just seen her life spiral as she ends up, you know, destitute, um, working as a prostitute out of a motel in Odessa. So right around the beginning of 1994, when Denise was 38, she disappeared. I just remember she was missing, and then we would get in my grandparents' car, and we'd drive around looking for different spots mm-hmm. she might be at and stuff and try to, you know, ask around, have you seen Denise, seen this? No, 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 nobody's seen nothing, nobody, I don't haven't seen anything. And then about a month after she was last seen, she was found dead by a truck driver. I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. I was at my mom's house, and I went into the kitchen, and I was getting something to drink or something, and she was on the phone with one of her friends. And I heard her say, <clears throat> I'm going to keep Derek home from school tomorrow because I have to tell him that um, they ended up, they found his mom, and she had passed away. Mm-hmm. She had died. When I heard her say that, I I couldn't believe it. I was I was really shocked. So I went to my room and I just laid down. And I just started crying. And this was this is this has happened whenever I was in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it felt like my life ended whenever I, you know, heard what he did to her. Whoever it was, they had strangled Denise and left her alone in a vacant lot. Police really struggled for leads. They interviewed a lot of people. They talked to Denise's boyfriend, who they believed to be her pimp, um, who told them that Denise drove off one Friday night with a middle-aged stranger with a mustache and an afro, this guy who seemed to be sleeping in his car because he had blankets in the back, and the boyfriend said she never came back. Yeah, I remember getting called out to the scene after a patrol had gotten there and found found out that it was going to be a homicide. And uh, um, This detective, um, Snow there. Robertson, he's um, called to the scene well, when Denise's body is found, and he knows that they've already lost precious time just because of how long she's been out in the elements. And uh, when I got there, I saw the body. I saw that she was badly decomposed and kind of trash placed on her to try to, it was an obvious attempt to hide her, hide the Mm -hmm. body. He goes to the autopsy and watches over the whole thing. And he goes out on evenings to look for leads from prostitutes and drug informants. See if they came up with anything new. And it, it was just like everything dried up. There was, you know, nothing. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's saying anything new about it. He also makes sure to submit a report about this murder to a centralized system that the FBI has created. And this is a system that's meant to catch repeat offenders. It's meant to identify serial killers. And the problem is that he is one of the rare investigators in the country at the time who is really diligent about submitting reports on his murders. The fact the Texas Ranger that was assigned to the unit at the time would laugh at me because I would take cases home at night and on the weekends and work on them. And and, uh, and then during the summer, I would go out to the pool. I'd take out my homicide books out there. And, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he really, you know, feels compelled to do this. And he submits a report on Denise's case on a hunch that, you know, this is not a one-time killer. It just kind of felt that way. It, and then with her being a prostitute and with the amount of force that was used on her, it just, it's it just something that I kind of felt. And when Snow Robertson leaves for another city in 1999, he leaves behind hundreds of pages of notes, all these leads he's pursued, but... The case goes cold and stays that way for almost two decades. In 2012, a man named Samuel Little is arrested for the murders of three women in Los Angeles back in the 1980s. They have DNA evidence that's linking him to these stranglings. And so they bring him to trial. Um, He's convicted. But throughout all of this, he's maintaining his innocence, and he gets sent off to prison for life, um, still saying he's not guilty of anything. I don't know how comfortable your life is. I don't know if you like it here. I don't know if you don't like it. You know what I'm going to be here. I don't know what I'm going to be here. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be Yeah? Where would you rather be right now? Free. Okay. A Texas Ranger named Jim Holland is at a cold case conference in late 2017. And this Florida investigator who's been interested in Little approaches the Texas Ranger 
and urges him to take a deeper look at this guy. He knows that Holland is an expert at extracting confessions from killers. And so Holland does take a look and he ends up talking to the FBI. He flies out to California to visit Little in prison and he finds this septuagenarian man in a wheelchair who has maintained his innocence all his life, but now that he's, you know, locked up for good, is maybe ready to finally start confessing. Got a phone call and was asked to come out here and, and visit with you for a little bit. Uh, actually kind of uh, makes it sound a little weird, but I'm kind of excited to, uh, to meet you. I've been looking forward to this. And he, um, you know, just applies all of these skills he's honed over the years to build up a rapport with Little. They got local media. There's hardly anyone out there. No one knows your name. No one knows uh, much about you, to tell you the truth. But I think you're probably one of the most interesting people in the history of our country. And you have a story to tell. I'm here to say you want to tell that story. Yeah. About an hour into their conversation, Little actually starts confessing for the first time in his life. And the first murder he admits to is Denise Christie Brothers. Tell me a little bit more about uh, how did she how did she die? Did she attack you or what'd she do? Or she start acting the fool? Start acting the fool the hell the door. She's trying to rip you or you know, she was fucking her all up and uh and what we learn from this flood of confessions that follows is that he had been killing for more than two decades before he met Denise, and she wouldn't be his last victim. And so ultimately, how many people does Little confess to having killed? He confesses to killing 93 people, and that's over more than 30 years, from 1970 to 2005, according to Little, and they happen across 19 states. That's insane. Yeah. Well, so if that's the case, I mean, if all these confessions are, are actually true, that's more people than basically any serial killer I've heard of. I mean, I've never heard of anyone who's killed almost 100 people individually like that. Yeah, and even Little in this conversation with the Texas Ranger, he says, you know, I I lost track at like number 84, and I think, you know, I'm sure I killed more after that. How many, how many do you think are out there? 84. 84. That's a little out of There's some more in that probably. Yeah. Did you keep track? I lost track. Yeah. I was caught by states. So do we know for sure that all these murders actually happened? Like, have we confirmed or have police confirmed the nature of all these confessions? So what the FBI and local police have been able to do is take Little's confessions and then go look in their cold case files, sometimes beyond their cold case files. Sometimes maybe they have to go into like death certificates and find, you know, specific details that just match what Little is saying. Like, and and he's not the greatest on dates. Um, He can't necessarily remember someone's name, but he can remember very specific things like the place he left someone or he actually remembered like the last meal a woman had eaten and it Mm. matched what was in her stomach. So things like that. Oh, wow. So so then there are some cases where, or it sounds like there are some cases where 
the confession that Little made saying that he killed this person is actually the primary evidence that they have that he actually killed this person. That there are like lots of killings where they don't actually know who the victim is. Yeah, no, it's they have to do this strange, um, you know, investigation in reverse where they have the culprit. You know, he's saying he did it. He's giving them all the details, too. He's saying often, you know, where and how and and why did it. And now they just have to go figure out, you know, did we even find this body? Like there, there are some victims who have never been found. But the FBI has said that, you know, they believe Little is 100 percent credible And so, um, you know, even if um, some of these cases have yet to be corroborated, they feel that they're out there somewhere. So I'm I'm just trying to wrap my head around what it would be like for someone to kill more than 80 people. Like, I I feel like that comes out to several murders every year. Like, what, what do we know about what he was doing during this time, the type of people that he was targeting and and how he was basically committing this series of murders so consistently over the course of his life. Yeah, he was a drifter. You know, he went around living in motels and shoplifting. At times he had kind of a a partner in crime. Her name was Aurelia Dorsey, and she was, um, you know, helped him shoplift as well. They picked up kind of other people at various times, but he was constantly moving And he was often, you know, getting in brushes with the law, but it was never anything that really kept him locked up for good. And because he got out of town um, so quickly sometimes, you know, it was really hard for authorities to track him. He's really, um, you know, pretty canny about what will help him get away with these murders, right? And he says very blatantly, you know, he's not going to go to the nice neighborhood and pick out like a white teenage girl. He's very open about that. He's picking on the women in the poor neighborhoods, in the black neighborhoods, who if they go missing, maybe they won't, maybe it won't be noticed immediately. Um, Maybe it won't be taken as seriously by the authorities. Um, So he's very cunning in that way. And it really does um, help him evade the authorities for years and years and years. But even so, like, how is it that he can commit all of these killings and still not be caught. Well, that's the crazy thing. He was actually caught and he he came, you know, close at times to being locked up and police, you know, sometimes they had survivors. They had people who said, I was beaten and raped and choked by this man and they were willing to testify in court to that. But even in those cases where, you know, you think you have a pretty good case, these are people who jurors were not necessarily inclined to believe, or at least prosecutors worried they weren't inclined to believe. And so, um, you know, sometimes Little would get like a lenient plea deal because the attorneys just don't want to put sex workers on the stand because they know that they'll be just questioned really brutally. Or you have a case in like Pascagoula, Mississippi, where there's these two Black sex workers who say, um, yeah, like Little choked me and left me for dead. And they testify, and the grand jury just doesn't buy it, according to a current-day investigator who's familiar with this case. The people just didn't believe in their story when it was presented to the grand jury. This investigator, Darren Versaja, he's very open as well about the fact that back then, you know, people just weren't going to necessarily 
listen to someone who was involved in crimes of their own, who came from the seedier part of town and, you know, also were Black. They had all these strikes against them that made it harder for their cases to make it through to people. It sounds like you think it's just because people didn't believe prostitutes back then, basically. Were they, um, were both of these women they Black, did. too? Yeah, both of them were Black, and they didn't. I mean, you know... You always heard Mississippi's little Bible Belt and everything, and, and they just looked at those people as differently, as mm-hmm. different, as as less than. And if you're a black prostitute, uh, I'm sure they looked at you even less than that. If you're a white prostitute, I mean, you know, maybe they looked at you a little different. But but I think the the criminal element, them just being who they were, uh, being involved in drugs and crime and theft and and prostitution, uh, they. You know, the credibility is going to be hard. Defense attorney would have a field day with them. So tell me about some of these cases where we believe that Little killed somebody and was never caught. These cases fall into different buckets for me in terms of like where you see the system breaking down. And so you have some cases, and I think this sticks out especially egregiously for me in a couple cases where the victims were Black you know, you had police overlooking huge red flags, basically, and concluding that these were non-suspicious deaths. And so, for example, you have a case like Marianne Jenkins in Illinois, who's a likely victim of Little, not, um, you know, totally confirmed, but authorities are fairly confident. And she was found basically naked. She was just wearing her jewelry. She's outside. And officials somehow decide that she was killed in a lightning strike. Seriously, a lightning strike? And I don't know the details of how exactly they concluded that. Um, Authorities would not release the documents but because they say it's an ongoing investigation. Um, But, you know, it seems clear that some really suspicious circumstances were um, overlooked. In another case in Tennessee, a woman named Martha Cunningham was found bruised. Her clothes are in disarray. Her underwear is pulled down. And police look at it and they tell the local news, we think this was um, natural causes and she has a history of seizures. So, you know, you see some cases where it's just so clear that, you know, these awful, awful findings were downplayed. You know, the theme that I've heard come up a lot of times when you hear stories about serial killers is this idea that if police departments and agencies aren't actually communicating with each other, it's very easy to not realize that all of these things, all of these killings or all of these acts of violence are part of one person's actions. Did that play a role here in terms of people thinking, well, there were a few killings here or a few acts of violence there, but not really being able to pull together the incredible magnitude of what this person did? Yeah, I think that's one of the big failures that emerges because, you know, across departments, you have some departments who tried pretty hard. You have some departments who really did not um, try hard at all and ignored some huge red flags um, in order to dismiss the deaths as non-suspicious. But, you know, above it all, you have this lack of a system that can track a person like Little and start to put these pieces together. And so, um, you know, in like the mid-1980s, the FBI is trying to launch this program that's really designed to catch um, serial killers and rapists. And it's trying to collect reports from all around the country on these kind of crimes so they can look through for patterns. 
And we talked to a lot of investigators who say, yeah, you know, I submitted to that and I just never heard back. Or um, a lot of investigators just didn't submit at all. I mean, it had really low reporting rates. And so I think something like only um, about 10 of Little's cases actually made it into that national system. And so um, beyond that, you have investigators who say, you know, I did bring my concerns to the FBI and they say they just never heard anything back. Hmm. We also contacted uh, the FBI uh, Behavior Science Unit, Hmm. and we contacted the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. That's a state police agency that does investigations in Florida. One of the people we talked to who says they reached out to the FBI about Little and tried to sound the alarm about his killing was Kenny Mack, a former investigator with the Sheriff's Department in Florida. You know, I notified, you know, Quantico to an analyst, the analyst should have, or I would have thought she would have handed it off to a local FBI agent here in this area for him to, you know, for them to come at least get, you know, fingerprints and photographs or whatever they needed or any background information mm-hmm. on a little, but we, met, we were never contacted. And what has the FBI said about this? The fact that this person was able to kill dozens and dozens of people before he was actually caught? The FBI has said that, you know, Little was choosing victims whose cases were less likely to be solved, you know, because maybe they were people who would not be immediately missed when they disappear. They've acknowledged that some of these cases were not initially labeled as murders. They were called drug overdoses. They were called, you know, undetermined and that that played a role as well. And then they've also noted that Little was, um, you know, traveling and he was he was hard to track. As for, you know, the stories from some uh, local officials that we heard that they had reached out to the FBI and never heard anything, the FBI basically declined to comment and said it's just not their their practice to discuss, like, specific investigative matters. Um, so all they've said is that um, Little first came to the attention of their um, violent criminal apprehension program in 2013. But beyond that, we just don't know very much about their response. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. So where is Little now, and is he going to face justice for all of these killings? So Little is um, locked up for life. He's in California, and, you know, he's 80 years old now. So there are a lot of jurisdictions that, you know, have charged him for the murders that they're now piecing together all these years later. But they're doing that knowing that they won't necessarily actually bring Little Um, to court just because, frankly, there's a lot of places that are trying to work through these crimes. And also, you know, Little's already locked up. It just doesn't necessarily make sense for them to, you know, move him out of state and go through that whole process. You know, what strikes me about what makes 
these stories so sad and what makes these murders so horrible is not only the fact that because so many of these people were on the edges of society, that their murders weren't properly investigated or that they and their families will never really see justice, but but also that because those murders were were kind of put aside because police didn't pay as much attention to them, that it allowed him to continue to go on and kill more people. And that lives could have been saved if some of these deaths were taken more seriously and and some of these women were considered more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say, you know, there are some departments where they investigated with a lot of effort and felt like they had put together a case But these cases were also very hard to prosecute successfully. And one um, really outrageous case is in San Diego, where police actually caught Little in the 1980s, basically in the act. They find him uh, stepping out of his car, you know, zipping up his pants. There's this woman who's bloody and battered and looks dead in the back of the car. Um, And she survives to actually testify against Little along with Another woman um, who police are able to um, link to Little, or who believe is his victim, but both of the women are sex workers, and Little insists that his only crime is um, beating one of the women during um, like a dispute over a consensual sexual transaction. That was enough to sow doubt among jurors. They declined to convict Little on the most serious charges. And instead of risking another trial, the prosecutors accept his guilty plea on assault charges. And so after 19 months in prison, Little goes free. And the prosecutor in that case has told us he was just, you know, devastated. He says, this is probably the worst guy I ever prosecuted. So you have authorities who felt like they had a case who had started to put things together and started to see that Little was suspected in multiple killings, you know, around the same time and who believe, okay, maybe he's a serial killer. And they just aren't able to prove it in court. You know, as disturbing as it is, if you target a certain kind of person who is already undervalued by society, who is already, you know, not believed, who is looked down on, you know, you can get away with this kind of crime over and over again. And there's there's a lot of factors at play, right? You'd had, you know, technology was not as advanced as it was today. You know, data sharing between police departments was not as advanced as it was today. And so, you know, there's a lot of things colliding here. But I think at the heart of it, what really, you know, drew us to this story and what we kind of found, you know, reinforced with each case we looked at is that these are people on the margins of society who have just been failed over and over again. And it's stunning how far you can get um, picking on those kinds of people. So so fast forward, you and how did you hear about the stuff with Samuel Little? How did you first get? Oh, my God, that? on the news. Yeah. When I seen the news, my mouth just dropped. Okay, uh, okay. Did you ever talk to any families who think that their loved ones might have been one of Little's victims, but but don't really know for sure? I spent um, some time with a family in Memphis who they saw um, a portrait that Little had drawn of his Memphis victim. And, and Little, um, he likes to do art, and so he's drawn portraits of a lot of his victims, and some police agencies have circulated them in the hopes that someone will see this and recognize their loved one. And so in Memphis, this went on the local news, and Bernice Talley, whose mother disappeared when she was just a young child, 
um, sees this and she thinks, oh my God, you know, that's my mom. And then when they show the pictures, I was like, this my mama. You know, like, I know this her. Like, I feel like this her. But then somebody else got in there was like, it could be their mama. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just, if it just, just to know. I wish I could just talk to him. Like, I want to know and show him a picture of her and be like, is this her? Now, all these months later, that was in early 2019 when she sees this on the news, she still doesn't know. She's still waiting for answers. And there are ways to figure out um, who Little's victim was. Like, the straightforward way would be to get um, Bernice's DNA and then try to um, match it to this Jane Doe that they found in Memphis. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, the case has just stalled. Police say that, you know, with the coronavirus, they've been held up. They say they've also been dealing with a lot of other homicides and just kind of conf a confluence of reasons why they haven't been able to focus on this and get DNA from the families. But at the same time, the database for, you know, family DNA that this sample would be added to, it's been around for a really long time. And so I think there are questions about, you know, why has this family who could get answers from this DNA database, why haven't they been added in all these years? And so the families there are kind of in limbo. Like, oh my God, like I just feel like I never had the genuine love because I feel like ain't no love like a mother's love. And like, I had just been wanting love all my life. Like I just, God, I would pay for anything just to have my mom. I would try anything in the world just to have, you know, just to know her or just, you know, just have some kind of insight of what happened or anything, I just think it's not fair that, you know, I just feel like she should be able to be laid to rest too, or, you know, like whatever going on, like something needs to be, I mean, I wanna know something. Hannah Knowles is a general assignment reporter for The Post. This episode was produced by Rennie Spernovsky and edited by Ted Muldoon. Wesley Lowry and Mark Berman also worked on this project. You can find more from their reporting online in their three-part series called Indifferent Justice. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Rani Svarnovsky is an associate producer. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. And we are hiring. We currently have openings for our team for two assistant producers. We'll add a link to the job postings in our show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.